Good morning, everybody. My name is Keith Gove, and uh, I'm also one of the pastors here at Richfield. And uh, this morning, we're, we're continuing this series in the book of Acts. So we're, we're going to pick up just the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in and tell you that this is, this is a big deal, this, this idea of what we are talking about, Sharia and the, uh, the, the folks up here were singing about the Holy Spirit, that you are, you are welcome here. Um, this passage has everything to do with uh, our interaction, our relationship with God and his spirit uh, as it was in that early church and also for us, and it is uh, truly, genuinely a matter of life and death. God uses in this passage today an extraordinary, a terrifying event to expose the threat of hypocrisy, of, of pretending in that early church for their good and for ours, all the subsequent generations of the church. It is vital that we understand this, that we get this right, that we recognize how, how ugly pretending is before God through his spirit. So I'm gonna read through the text and then we'll pray as we begin. So, starting now at the end of chapter 4, because I think Luke connects these ideas between 4 and 5 very specifically. So now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony uh, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, so tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
when the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So, Lord, would you be with us this morning? This is a hard story to hear. And Lord, we want to hear it well from your spirit. We want to learn from you this morning. So would you teach us? Um, Would you lead us? Would you show us what we need to know and help us to move forward? In Jesus' name, amen. So this whole passage is about hypocrisy. It's about pretending. It's about the church enjoying this amazing, amazing uh, beginning from Pentecost through chapter 2. They're they're sharing everything. They've got everything in common. Anyone who has needs, they're helping. They're, They're caring. They're loving each other, caring for one another. And then there's this incident with Ananias and Sapphira that takes something beautiful, something holy, something pure, and and turns it and twists it into something selfish. So real quick, before we get back to the text, I want to talk about the allure of hypocrisy because I think we can all relate to this. So thus, Joseph... So he he paints this picture of the early church and all the good things that were happening, how they were caring for each other. And in this manner, in this way, thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite native of Cyprus, sold a field. And it's important that we see here, he brought the money, all the money. So Luke contrasts it with what Ananias and Sapphira did. Joseph, who is called Barnabas, brings all the money and, and lays it at the feet of the apostles. So I want to talk just a little about Barnabas because I don't know if you guys knew this, if this is new to you or just to me, did you guys know jo- Barnabas' real name was Joseph and Barnabas is a nickname? I never knew that. All this time, ah, I don't know, it just it strikes me. All these things that when we read, we learn. Um, His name is Barnabas, but from here on out, I'm going to refer to him as Barnabas Brad Pitt, okay? Because Barnabas has everything going for him. Barnabas, uh, I'm going to go ahead to here. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Now, who calls him the son of encouragement? The apostles. The apostles who hung with Jesus every day, who heard every teaching of Jesus, who sat with him every day for three years. The apostles who are now the superstars of this early church, they give Barnabas a nickname. They Imagine all the, you know, there's a bunch of disciples, right? We have 3,000 added to their number and then more thousands. There's a bunch, Right? Imagine them in a line, you know, the apostles are coming by. Oh, hey, hey, Peter. Oh, hey, John. Hi. Hey, hey. And they're going by and they're like, oh, hey. Annas? Is that Ananias, actually. Yeah, thank you. Hi, good to see you. And then they get to Barnabas. They're like, Barnabas, hey. They're like punching him in the stomach and giving him noogies. Like, he's, he's like one of the guys. Imagine Ananias, like no nickname Ananias. Like, I don't get any of that. He is a son of encouragement to the apostles. 
They gave him that name. He encouraged them. And Ananias just feels this. I'm, I'm projecting on Ananias, obviously, but there's great allure. There's great, uh, we just want to be like that guy. Like, man, that, that I would be seen like that by the apostles. Man, that would be awesome. He's given this name by the apostles. Later in Acts, uh, Luke writes that Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord through him. He's doing everything right. This is Barnabas Brad Pitt. In, uh, in church history, they say uh, in Lystra, so uh, Paul and Barnabas, one of their missionary journeys, they go to this town called Lystra, and they had a nickname for Barnabas as well. They called him Jupiter, which... Uh, in the Roman, like all the gods that the Romans worship, Jupiter's like the god of gods, like Zeus for the Greeks. So their nickname for him was Jupiter. So I'm just imagining this guy. I don't know what he looked like. I have no idea. But he is beloved. Everything is going well. He's speaking with power from the Holy Spirit. People are coming to Christ Everything just seems to go his way. He brings, he sells this property. He brings everything to the apostles' feet, lays it down, and everybody's like, Barnabas, that guy's awesome. And Ananias and Sapphira want a piece of that. They want to be seen the way everybody sees Barnabas. So Joseph, also called Barnabas, brings this amazing gift to care for the church. And notice how chapter 5 begins. Our text today, from 1 to 11, our text starts with, but. Now, you remember Todd said a few weeks ago there's lots of buts in the Bible, right? No joke, no joke. Uh, Matthew Henry, who's this commentator from like the 1600s, his commentary on this chapter, he has no idea about the double meaning. You know, they probably didn't even call your backside a butt in 1600, right? But he starts his commentary of chapter 5 with, this is one of the saddest butts in the Bible. No joke. No joke. And he uses the word melancholy, which makes it even funnier. So on top of everything else that Ananias does not have going for him, he has a sad butt. But a man named Ananias and Sapphira uh, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. He made it appear as though he was doing just what Barnabas did, not telling anyone that he had taken back a portion of those proceeds and kept it for himself. He wanted to appear like he had brought it all, just like Barnabas had. So what is this hypocrisy? Why is it so, uh, why is it so abhorrent to God? Um, Jesus talked a lot about hypocrisy. And in Matthew 23, seven times he calls it out in the religious leaders of his day, in the Pharisees and the scribes. These are just two of them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. 
Jesus tells us how to deal with this that we'll get to later. But he tells us first, deal with the inside stuff, then the outside stuff. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this idea of hypocrisy from Jesus and through the New Testament and here with Peter uh, is it is an outward appearance of holiness, of goodness, of kindness, of the fruit of the Spirit, but without the inward reality. So why do we do it? You know, we talked a little about the allure of, uh, you know, people that we want to be like. Ultimately, it comes down to we want people to think well of us. You know, we want to be seen well. And with hypocrisy, we get all the accolades without the sacrifice. We can appear like we have it all together without actually doing the work to have it all together. We want to be like those people that we admire. And the behaviors are just easier to generate than the actual heart. I can make myself look like Barnabas, but I can't be Barnabas. And if that's the standard, I'm stuck. Now, I'll tell you for me, um, when I started here, I, I came on staff as an intern in 2007, um, working with Todd and with Dennis. And I thought, I have to be them. I have to be, you know, if this is what it looks like to be a pastor, I've got to be Todd. I gotta have Todd's gifts. I gotta be like Dennis. I gotta have Dennis's gifts. Now, I don't want you to think, you know, the Barnabas and the Brad Pitt thing. That part doesn't, doesn't apply here. <laughs> It's, it's more like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito in this one. <laughs> it's a different movie. <laughs> but the pull is the same, right? The pull is, I want to I have those gifts. I want to be, be like them because that's what it looks like. And it wasn't, it wasn't until later that I, thought, I figured out God gave me my gifts, different gifts. And he gave all of you your gifts, different gifts that we're to use. And if we keep comparing ourselves to, every, to each other, saying, I want Carl's gifts or I want Adam's gifts, we're going to be stuck because God didn't give us all those gifts. But Ananias and Sapphira, they want to be like Barnabas. That's why Luke sets it up. Here's the story of Barnabas. And right after that, but Ananias and Sapphira tried to do the same, but with a shortcut. So, jumping to kind of our application for us. What are the symptoms? How do we know? If this is so horrible, this is terrible to God, how do we know the symptoms of what, how, what this looks like or how this feels? So, in the middle of the good things that we do, now this is not an exhaustive list, this is just from my own experience, right? So, in the middle of the good things that we do, if we're feeling like we're doing them half-heartedly. You know, uh, we've used before the example of, you know, helping a buddy move, you know, where you go over and you're happy to do it, you love to do it, but uh, if we're doing it half-heartedly, like, yeah, I'll be there, but I'm really wishing I was home, you know, watching the game, or I was, you know, home with my family, or home with my kids, or I've got all kinds of chores at home I should be doing. You know, if we're there and we're half-hearted, 
it may be a sign that, hey, maybe I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. Maybe I'm not really here wholeheartedly. I'm really not invested here. Or if we're saying, you know what, I don't want to be here. I don't want to help this person move. I showed up and nothing's in a box yet. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be going through all their personal stuff. But I'm supposed to. I ought to. I should. It's the right thing. It's the Christian thing. And it feels heavy. Like, all right. Like, not just heavy lifting, but like heavy. I don't want to do this. I want to do this, but I don't want to do this. Right? And the thing that makes it lighter, the thing that makes it better, is if someone will notice. If someone will say, hey, Keith's the kind of guy who comes and helps you move. Then, I, then it's worth it. All of a sudden, well, you know, I, I missed out on the time with my kids, but everybody thinks I'm a little bit more like Barnabas Brad Pitt now. <laughs> and that's the thing we're, we're working for, hoping for. But all the while, there's this fear of being found out. I know for me, working here as I started, I thought, someday, which is silly to say, someday somebody's going to figure out I don't have the gifts that Todd has. Somebody's going to figure out that I'm not wired the same way that Todd is, which probably you would figure out as soon as you meet me. But <laughs> I'm thinking like, oh, no, there's this big secret that people are going to find out. And when we're doing things, we're doing good things, and we're feeling these things, there may be that pretending going on. I, I want to be seen as something. I want to be known as something that's not maybe the reality in my heart. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. We've talked here before about, you know, a tree that bears fruit and, you know, people who, who maybe they're a tree, they don't have fruit, so they start taping fruit onto the branches, you know, just like, well, it's not there yet, but I'm sure it's on its way. It's only just a minute here, and it's going to grow for real. Um, God wants us to be who we are, and he shows in just dramatic, dramatic fashion to this early church how deadly serious he is about pretending when it comes to our relationship with him. So, Verse 3 of chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then down to the middle, you not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Then to his wife, Sapphira, you, why have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And immediately... She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. This is as serious as can be. I just want to point out some of the contrast. Satan filled your heart. Why has Satan filled your heart? We're just coming out of Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit was filling people and they're speaking in tongues that they don't need, never learned and all of a sudden it's coming out of them. They're preaching with boldness. They're being persecuted and they're praying for more boldness. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to pretend 
But notice he doesn't let them off the hook. He says, well, it was just Satan's fault. You know, he got a hold of you and he did something he shouldn't have. But you guys are fine. Don't worry about you guys. He says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Both and. Yes, Satan worked in your heart. He said, you know, did God really say, you know, just like he's been doing since the garden. And you decided, you contrived this deed in your heart. And he said, You've lied to the Holy Spirit. This is one of the only passages or one of few passages in Scripture where the deity of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being called God very explicitly uh, is, is right line after line. You have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have lied to God. Notice that Peter doesn't say, you've lied to me and therefore you've lied to God. Like I'm your, I'm your one mouthpiece with God and, and if you've lied to me, you've lied to God. No, he says, we're here offering these offerings to God. Peter's obviously standing there, but the offering is to God and you're misrepresenting, you're lying about what you have brought to God. You are lying to him. This dealing that you have is with God. And if you really believe Ananias and Sapphira, if you really believe that you can fool God, if you really believe he doesn't see what you've done, your view of God is so off, is so skewed that you don't, you don't know who this God is <laughs> that you're interacting with. He says, why have you tested the spirit of the Lord? Maybe thinking, oh, God won't care. God won't mind. He's all right. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, he'll be good with it. He won't, he won't do anything. And, and they, they prioritize utility over integrity. Uh, you know, I'll, it's a good thing. I'm bringing this money. Who cares if I kept a little back? You know, it's all right. I'm doing good stuff. The heart of it uh, doesn't matter. I'll worry about that later. Jesus said, worry about the heart, the inside stuff, first and foremost. How many, I get these emails, which I'm telling you are, are my most depressing emails of the week, and they are, uh, it's a ministry group that, that just keeps track of and watches all of these failures uh, of pastors and churches all over the country and around the world, and just how many times utility is prioritized in the church today over integrity. You know, good things are happening. Yes, you know, the pastor is kind of abusive and, you know, doing some wrong things with money or whatever, but good things are happening. People are coming to the church. And so we overlook it until it becomes so egregious that, you know, the police or somebody has to get involved. Peter's encouragement, Jesus' encouragement, God's encouragement, deal with the inside stuff first. Be honest with God. And his judgment, I believe, was to instruct that early church and every subsequent church. Pretending with God is genuinely deadly. So, why don't we fall down dead? You know, I've already, I've already confessed to you all the times that I have felt, you know, some of those things, some of those symptoms of, you know, maybe I'm not wholeheartedly in this situation. Um, 
Why doesn't God strike us down dead? I think this was a unique moment in church history. The church has never existed before. It's, it's brand new. And God is setting the ground rules. God is, is putting a hedge around this to say, dude, do not do this. Also, the appearance of holiness, the good things we do without a new heart, is death. It's already death. We're not saved by any of those good things. So if we're doing, we can do all the good things we want. But without a new heart, it is death. We are dead already in that. And it leads to an even greater, long-lasting, eternal death if we don't make that change and uh, be honest with God about who we are and who he is. I think Peter in his letter, he's talking about Christ's return in 2 Peter, but I think it applies here as well. You know, why doesn't, why doesn't God just strike us down when we make a mistake? Peter says, the Lord's not slow in his return. He's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, writing to this, these Christians or folks who are attached to this church, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God sets the example. He, he makes this bold declaration through Ananias and Sapphira and then is patient that we would repent, that we would get the message and we would be honest. We would interact with him with honesty and with integrity. So what is the antidote to, to hypocrisy? What do we do? How do we avoid it? How do we live confidently, comfortably in the gifts God has given to us? And it begins with, so simply, just being honest with God. We don't need to be Barnabas Brad Pitt. We can be who God made us to be. And we need to remember, he is the God who sees our hearts. That passage from Samuel is when he's choosing David as the king. And David's a little scrawny guy they didn't even bring to the table because he was out, out uh, watching the sheep. Well, no way God's going to pick him. And Samuel says, God looks at the heart, not as man sees. He knows our thoughts and our words, it says in Psalm 139, before we even know them. If we think we're going to deceive God, if we think we're going to fool him, if we think we're going to pull one over on him, we are wrong. He even knows our motivations. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church about giving, said he loves a cheerful giver. Not just that you give, you know, put in your, put in your offering. He wants you to be able to give it joyfully. And what we say based on that is if you're not able to, to give it joyfully hang on to it until you can because the inside stuff is infinitely more important than the outside stuff now we believe the inside results in the outside stuff that the integrity in the heart and the inside of the cup is going to be reflected on the outside but we got to start on the inside so we're honest with God. And then we got to cultivate this healthy fear of God. So you notice both times he says, great fear came upon this crowd, right? Um, great fear came upon them when they heard it, that Ananias 
had died. And then when uh, Sapphira had died, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, I think maybe if we look at, at older generations or different kind of iterations of the church, you know, there was a big emphasis on the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And then today the pendulum is swung and it's like, no, you know, God is nice and he's kind and he's, you know, pats me on the head. And there are aspects of, of that that is true, that God is kind, way more kind to us than we deserve. But there is an element of this fear of the Lord that we cannot lose. So what is, a, what is an unhealthy fear of the Lord? The, a fear that God is capricious or, or random or chaotic or, you know, like the Greek gods. One day, you know, he's kind and he's nice and the next day you better watch out because he'll smite you. That's not our God. He's not random. He's not chaotic. Or a fear that God will forsake those who love him. We know from scripture he will not. But we live with this fear like, oh, gosh, if I do something wrong, he's, you know, he'll turn his back on me. I, he'll finally have had enough of me and he'll be done with me. That's not an appropriate fear of God. He's adopted us through Jesus, through faith in him, and we're his. Fear that God will find out our true brokenness. That God, one day, he's going to find out just how sinful I am. I'm going to keep hiding it from him until then, but one day he's going to figure it out. That's not an appropriate fear because God knows everything about us, beginning to end, thoroughly and completely. Or fear that God's going to lose his patience with us will never happen. Or that he's just up there waiting to zap us, waiting for that next sin, waiting for that next mistake, and then whammo! It's not an appropriate fear of God because it's not his nature, it's not his character. So what is a healthy fear of God? I know the word awe is, is so kind of trampled by our culture and, and overused and doesn't maybe have a lot of meaning anymore. But think of all the stories in the Bible when somebody encounters an angel and they fall on the ground and they're afraid they're going to die. And the first thing the angel has to say is, don't be afraid. Or when Isaiah's in the temple and God meets with him there and, and he says, I am lost. I am undone. I am going to die because God is here. Or Moses on Sinai when he says, God, I want to I see you face to face. And God says, you can't handle me. You can't see. You, you know, like Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. He has to hide him in the rock and go by. We need to recover or, or remember or cultivate and continue that, that understanding that God is way bigger then we can uh, ever get our arms around bigger and better. Reverence, all the pictures of worship in the book of Revelation, you know, these angels, these creatures, these elders, everything that's up in heaven as John is painting this picture, they are bowing down, they're casting their crowns before God. The picture of humility and reverence to who God is and what he has accomplished it is an honest appreciation and confession of what we deserve. 
A fear of God recognizes that we are sinners who are only going to be saved by his grace, by a gift of his to us. And so we, we live in that mercy, knowing we did not deserve the greatest thing that we enjoy. Honest awareness of our ongoing temptation and sin. Not only has, if we come to him with faith, has Jesus forgiven us, has God accepted us and adopted us, but all those past sins are combined with all our present sins and all our future failures. God knows it all back at point one and loves us and saves us and works to change us by his Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it is a healthy fear of fear of offending this great kindness, this great goodness. How could we measure being headed for hell and being given the gift of God's mercy? How could I how can I quantify that? How can I revere that enough? Be grateful for that enough. And it's also the fear of the genuine consequences that come from our mistakes. And saying, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do these things because I know they have immediate consequences. All of these things, I think, are, are a healthy expression of fear. So we're honest with ourselves. We are sinners saved by grace. We're honest about who God is. He is complex. He doesn't explain why Ananias and Sapphira die in this passage. He doesn't give us an explanation. But he is loving, all-knowing, faithful, and just and if we think we have got him, you know, wrapped up and tied in a little bow and in a box, we are wrong. He is an infinite God and we are finite folks. And honest about salvation, it is in Christ alone. It is only by genuine, honest trust in his saving work and real dependence on his faithfulness. So what do we do this week? How do, how do we live differently on Monday than we've lived every other Monday in light of this text? And uh, I just thought of uh, Psalm 139, just asking for God's help. The last line of Psalm 139 says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Lord, I know I'm tempted to pretend because I want people to think well of me. I want him to think I'm better than I actually am. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous, any offending way in me, any pretending way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can ask for God's help as best we can. We can do what we do this week wholeheartedly. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm not wishing I was somewhere else. I'm not frustrated that these people are, you know, asking for my help. 
wholeheartedly wherever I am, knowing that's where God has me and trusting that with all that God knows of us, because of Jesus, he loves us still. He knows us better than we know ourselves and he loves us. Heavenly Father, would you help? Would you search us? Would you know our hearts? Would you search our thoughts? And would you reveal to us if there is any offensive, any pretentious way in us? Would you show us, Lord? Would you point it out? Would you make it obvious? Lord, we want to be genuinely and authentically your people. And we need your help. Thank you, Lord.